Specialty Story, session number 209. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. We find out why they chose their specialty, what they like about it, what initially got them interested in it, maybe some distractions along the way from other specialties, and so much more. This week, we're talking to Dr. Hemel Nayak, a cardiac electrophysiologist who has been out of training now for many years. We're going to talk all about cardiac electrophysiology, what got him interested in, what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, and advice for you if you are interested in being an electrophysiologist. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Nayak first became interested in cardiac electrophysiology. You know, when I went into internal medicine, I wanted to choose a field that would allow me to uh, work with my hands. And so when you're an internal medicine resident, that leaves you with things like gastroenterology or cardiology or even potentially pulmonary care medicine. And of the three fields, I felt as if cardiology might be able to provide the most impact in terms of the things that I would do. I also like the patient population. I'd like, I'd, like the, I'd like the pathophysiology of the cardiac diseases that I encountered. And so that led me to cardiology. So it, it's from a uh, hands-on component. Why not look at something like a, a surgical subspecialty versus going the internal medicine route? So I always, you know, when, when I interact with med students and and uh, in in where I'm working currently, uh, people often ask me, well, what do you think is the major difference between medicine and surgery? Because they're both very procedural or can be. Mm. And I just think that medicine is definitely more thinking person's field. (laughs) Um, I also didn't love being in the operating room all the time. And I always say to the students, if you don't love being in the operating room, then surgery is not for you. I actually enjoyed seeing patients, talking to them, taking care of them. Also like the idea of seeing patients longitudinally, which I think as a surgeon, you may not have that ability to do as much. Yeah, that makes sense. What, um, what do you think are the, uh, what do you think is the biggest trait needed to be a good cardiac electrophysiologist? Uh, I think you have to have um, patience because the field can be intellectually very challenging. So you have to take the time to understand and think about what you're seeing, uh, especially when we do complex procedures. That's an important trait. I also think that you need to have a sense of investigation. Uh, Many things are not handed to you. It's, uh, you know, when we do an EP study, It is basically trying to figure out what this patient has. And that's the fun part of what we do in EP, that some things are, there are a lot of surprises along the way or nuances that you haven't seen before. So those things I think are important. 
Are there any myths or misconceptions about cardiac, uh, about EP? Well, we'll call it EP for now on. It's easier to say. Yeah, about, everyone calls it EP. <laughs> yeah. Um, about EP, are there any big myths or misconceptions that medical students or maybe even residents have? Yes, they, they often view EP as a black box. I don't know what goes on there. Uh, people go into these procedures and they come out and I have no idea what happens to them. Um, that's one big misconception. I think EP is very logical, which is nice. Um, EP is very, you know, there's a methodology behind it, which is also nice. Um, I think another misconception is it's too difficult. It's way beyond my, my understanding. It's over my head. I think that there are certain basics that you do need to understand when you go into EP, or when you want to like at least, you know, attend an EP procedure, but you can build upon that foundation and, and things start falling into place. Um, other misconception is that we're a bunch of nerdy cardiologists. <laughs> I think I think EP EP folks rock, and uh, they're actually a very fun bunch of people. Yeah, save save the nerds for neurology. Yeah. Uh, um, what types of patients are you treating uh, as an EP doc? The nice thing about the electrophysiology is we see patients who are 16 years old potentially as adults as, as adult internists and cardiologists, we see, I generally see patients from 16 onwards. Mm. So we have a lot of young patients who have things like supraventricular tachycardia. Um, and, you know, they may have syncope, for example. And then we see the other end of the spectrum. We see the older folks who may have, you know, complete heart block who need devices. And then we run the gamut in between in terms of age group, in terms of health of the patient. We see patients with normal hearts who just happen to have an electrical issue, then we see patients with severe LV dysfunction and heart failure. We treat those patients. So it's the variety uh, that I enjoy. We also see pregnant women with dysrhythmia. And so you get to see a broad spectrum of patients. Nice. That's, uh, that makes for fun days, not, not boring days. That's good. Right. Um, so as you uh, are seeing your patients, right? One of the things you mentioned earlier was one of the reasons you like EP is the, the hands-on, very procedure-based. How many patients that, that you see in a clinic and you're in an office visit, do you actually go and do procedures on at the end of the day? That's a great question. I think it varies on, the, on sort of the practice that you work at and the practice that you want to set up for yourself. Um, you know, I tend to have a, an, I see, I have an all day clinic currently, uh, half of my day is seeing return patients who either have had procedures done, or I'm, I'm just monitoring their antiarrhythmic drug therapy. If they happen to have atrial fibrillation, or they happen to have a device, for example. And then my afternoon is generally filled with new patients, new consultations. And so that's where you see the bulk of the patients that might need a procedure. So I think the the yield from seeing a patient and having a procedure done it can anywhere between thirty to fifty percent, depending upon the day. Yeah, interesting. So, what what does a day or a week look like for you? So you have to remember that I'm in an academic practice, and so uh, I'm a full time faculty member. Um, I have a full day clinic that I see at the hospital, and so that clinic day is busy. I see anywhere from twenty five to thirty patients. That that whole day. And I have help. I have a, a cardi EP fellow that sees some patients with me. I have a general cardiology fellow that sees patients with me. And so I'm, I'm not seeing them, you know, in detail like the residents or the fellows are. Now in practice, right, you may have help, you may not have help. And so you may be seeing the same amount of patients, but you're seeing each of those patients individually. So that's a clinic day. Mm -hmm. 
In terms of procedural days, most electrophysiologists are in the lab anywhere from three to four days a week. And those days can be long days. And so on average, and a busy electrophysiologist might do two ablations and a device in one day, or they may have four devices in one day. If it's a very complex case, let's say elite extraction and an ablation in one day. And so the days generally start anywhere from seven to 7.30 in the morning, and they last until around five to six. Those are procedural days as well as clinic days. Wow, long days. Um, what does call look like for you? So that's the beauty of electrophysiology is that there's call is pretty nice. So even in practice where call is the bane of everyone's existence, right? If you have EP only call, you generally get bothered by EP questions, you know, palpitations, somebody, your patient may call you saying, I'm having a fib. You can tell them what to do. There are few EP emergencies. And so in most private practices, let's say somebody walks into the ER with complete heart block. In, in my experience, um, you know, your partners who are in interventional cardiology will take care of the patient, put in a temporary pacemaker, and then you'll see the patient the next day. And you'll put a permanent device in. It's unusual for the EP doc to come in and do that. Um, EP people, EP docs come in for things like VT storm. So somebody's having recurrent VT that's refractory to medications and we get involved, we can come in and help. Uh, or, for example, somebody has an infected pacemaker defibrillator, they're in septic shock, that device has to be removed. Mm. We'll come in and do an emergent extraction. Uh, aside from that, you know, or let's say somebody's device is malfunctioning, we can program the device. But aside from that, call's pretty good. You know, we're not getting up at two in the morning, running in to do a STEMI or, you know, to do anything like that. We're not coming in to treat somebody with cardiogenic shock like our heart failure colleagues are doing. So call is pretty nice. So the lifestyle in terms of our days are long, but our call is great. Our weekends are also pretty good. Yeah. Do you, it sounds like uh, the, the next question, do you feel like you have enough time for life outside the hospital is a, a simple yes? Yes, I do. Uh, obviously, it depends on uh, interests, where you are in your level of career. So in the beginning, you want to, you're hungry. You want to establish yourself. You want to make sure you're the go-to person that people come to for issues that, that involve electrophysiology. Someone like myself who's been in EP for 20 years, you know, I let some of the junior folks sort of take some of that work. Um, I, so I, I do have time for myself. And I, I purposely make time for the things that are important to me. That's the key. You have to make the time. Yeah. Be very intentional is a, a word I use a lot lately. What does the, the training path look like to become you? So four years of medical school, you mentioned internal medicine, then, then what else? So four years of medical school, three years of internal medicine, and then generally speaking, three years of cardiology, mm -hmm. and then two years of clinical cardiac electrophysiology. So a few years ago, the EP program went from a one-year program to a two-year program. The other thing is that it's a mandatory three years of general cardiology followed by two years of EP. Wow. What was the, the impetus for that switch from one to two? Uh, we do a lot more complex procedures. And okay. so the, the, it felt, uh, the ACGME felt that a two-year program was what was necessary to learn the breadth and depth of electrophysiology. Wow. All right. That's, that's good. I, I, I take that as a good sign that you, the, the field itself and technology is getting to a place where maybe it's doing a lot more than initially was able, you were able to do. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think we are um, very fortunate in that we work in a field where uh, the technology really drives what we can do for patients. I always say, you know, 
the electrophysiology really provides the only cure in cardiology. You know, a specific example is somebody has WPW, we can cure WPW, we can eliminate it, they will never have it again, wow. right? And compared to somebody that has a stent put in, right? Just because you have a stent put in, that doesn't mean you've reversed coronary artery disease. You can have recurrent stenosis. You get other areas of stenosis. You might need another stent or an angioplasty. So there are certain things that we do in electrophysiology that are very, uh, I, I find very impactful to patients. Yeah. Now that requires a certain level of training and expertise. Yeah. When someone finishes their two years of EP fellowship, are there further opportunities to subspecialize or have you kind of hit a wall training wise and then you just go find what you're passionate about and, and kind of mm -hmm. see those types of patients? So within the fellowship, there are folks that, for example, enjoy doing specific type of procedures. And so you may go to a training program that's heavy in VT ablation because you enjoy VT ablation. And then when you finish, you want to go to an academic center and be the VT gal or the VT guy, and you'll be recruited by an academic institution to specifically do this program, run the program, start the program, or be the main person. Um, there are some people that do similar uh, decisions for lead extraction, for example, a program we recruit you to say, hey, we want to start a lead extraction program. Can you and your fellowship, you know, make sure that you come out proficient in this type of technique? Now, most folks that go into private practice end up doing a little bit of everything. So they do everything in electrophysiology and they may join a practice that may not have, for example, the infrastructure to do lead extraction or the infrastructure to do VT ablation. So I think the bread and butter cases that we do in EP, everybody knows how to do and everyone learns to do those well. Yeah. For the osteopathic student listening to this, what do they need to do to overcome any sort of negative bias that may be out there at some programs? I think to get a, uh, in order to get a, a good EP fellowship, we're looking for a couple of things. We're looking for, so I'm currently the, the fellowship director in my institution. We just went through the interview process right now. And so this is kind of uh, on the front of my mind. So what we look for is somebody, A, that comes from a good training program in cardiology, obviously good letters of recommendation, but also some investigation. So if you have some sort of interest in electrophysiology, where you've done some research, you least tried to submit an abstract on a particular topic, or you're working on something now with one of your mentors, that shows that you have a keen interest in electrophysiology. Doesn't mean you have to have a, public, a paper published, but some sort of story to tell that this is what I was interested in, this is what I've done so far, this is what I wish to continue. Yeah, actions speak louder than words. <laughs> Make sure you're doing things that show that you're interested in that specialty. Right. Um, it's, it's amazing how many people don't do that. And they just show up and go, I wanna do this. It doesn't right. work too well. Um, so that's good, that's, that's awesome. So for the future primary care doc listening to this, what do you wish they knew about EP to help their patients maybe sooner, help you um, take care of the patients? I think that since atrial fibrillation is the most common arrhythmia we see in the United States, it's the most common arrhythmia associated with stroke in the United States, the primary care physicians are the ones that are sort of at the forefront. And so I would have a very low threshold to refer. You can refer directly to electrophysiology. We love primary care referrals directly to us about AFib, or you can refer to cardiology and then the cardiologist can refer to us. So we rely on that primary care group to be the first person that recognizes that person has atrial fibrillation. Yeah. Are, are you pro or, or anti ECG on the Apple Watch? 
So I, I don't think we have a choice. I think <laughs> it's happening. And so we have to now learn how to live with it. Yeah. There are yeah. some advantages. And in fact, when I see a patient in clinic um, who's having symptoms of palpitations, I always order like a two-week monitor, mm-hmm. you know, an external monitor. And if that shows up with really nothing, then I give them an option. I said, listen, you have a couple of options. One is you can invest in an Apple Watch with ECG if you want to spend the $500 or whatever it costs. Mm-hmm. Or you can go ahead and get one of those downloadable apps that you can get your single EDCG. Mm-hmm. Or we can potentially do more external monitoring. So that's part of my discussion with that patient. Nice. Um, and I and I offer them, you know, listen, if you do get this, you know, feel free to, you know, save the tracings. You can always send them to me via email or send them to my nurse or nurse practitioner. We can review them. Just note that, you know, there's a lot of false positives associated with it. Yeah, but it's it's here it's here to stay, and it's yeah. only going to I think it's only going to increase in terms of its reliability. Yeah, yep, definitely. As an EP doc, what other subspecialties or specialties are you working the closest with? I work very closely with our with all the cardiologists, especially our heart failure physicians. Um, you know, we we care for a number of mutual patients. Uh, I work closely with our interventional doctors when we do a complex ablation, if they need to provide us with mechanical support. And of course, our general cardiologists and imagers. Outside of cardiology, the groups of folks that we often interact with are our CT surgeons. Um, you know, they help us with, uh, for example, they're, they're our backup when we do complex lead extraction. Uh, we also see a number of their patients after they do the operation. If a patient needs a device, we interact with them in those, in those ways. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into all this? Um, I didn't, I underestimated how much technology changes. Uh, and there's procedures and techniques that I do now that I never was trained to do. Mm. So you learn on the job. Uh, I wish that I had known that, that there's going to be a lot of on the job learning. I guess I was just would have prepared myself for it a little better. I wish that I also had a little bit more experience in um, statistics mm-hmm. and trial design, because that's, as an academic practice, we enjoy doing those things. And I'm learning as I'm doing. But if I had that background, I think things would have been a lot easier for me. Yeah. Interesting. But that's specific to me. Yeah. Those are, those are two good ones. Um, what do you like the most about being an EP doc? I can learn or see something that I haven't seen every day, almost every day. Really? I'll see a nuance. I'll, I'll see a tracing. I'll, I'll see a presentation that I hadn't seen before. I'm learning something new almost every day. Wow. That's amazing. Besides charting, what do you like the least about being, being an EP doc? Um, sometimes the complexity can get to be just mentally tiring. Mm. It's sometimes nice to get an easy case and you can just kind of coast through it. When you have tough case after tough case, it can get a little tiring. Yeah. Um, but that's part of the job. What do you do in those situations? There, there are some subspecialties, my, my wife being a concussion TBI specialist, where a lot of patients don't get better. Um, what do you do self-care wise after a long day of just tough case after tough case to, to take care of yourself so you're ready for the next day? I think just reflecting on, you know, what I did for that patient. And I know that I tried my best. I mean, we're here to, to help. We're here to improve quality of life. 
And we always strive to do those things. Sometimes it's just not in the cards. Mm-hmm. As long as I know I gave it my best shot, uh, I know I can't fix everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just self-reflection and then moving forward and having an honest discussion with yourself, I think makes a huge difference. Yeah. What does that look like um, specifically having a bad case or a bad outcome for a case? Obviously, death being the worst outcome, but but what what lo- for you, what classifies a bad outcome in a case? Yeah. So I think it's an important thing to relate to your viewers that, you know, electrophysiology is not it's not for the faint of heart. And we deal with a lot of serious things. We're specialists in sudden cardiac arrest. Patients, our patients do die and there's nothing you can do about it. Sometimes I was talking to some of my colleagues in ophthalmology and, and, you know, I have a friend who's a hand surgeon, you know, and I talked to him about a patient and I said, yeah, unfortunately the patient expired a few days later after the procedure. And he was just shocked. He's like, oh my God, if that ever happened to me, I don't know what I would do, but that's the nature of what we do. Um, So I think that just facing the facts that uh, patients are, are quite sick and understanding that I think helps you deal with things that come your way. Okay. So, so it truly is losing patience and not necessarily like I couldn't ablate that one thing causing whatever arrhythmia. I mean, that's probably ranks maybe a little bit below, yeah. you know, losing a patient yeah. uh, just because they're just very sick. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, you talked about the technology aspect and learning on the job, all of these new procedures and, and playing with new toys and stuff like that. Is there any like tectonic shifts that you see coming to the field that those coming up through training now should be aware of? I think our procedures are going to get a lot more effective, mm. a lot quicker to per- perform and hopefully safer. I think the technology is heading towards those, those three aspects of the procedures that we do. That's cool. I think that in 10 years, the techniques that I use now will be outdated. Yeah. The technology is really moving quickly. That's great. That's good. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be an EP doc? I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I, I the problem that I had is I enjoyed everything. I think yeah. a lot of your viewers are in that same position, right? You know, when you're in, when you're an undergrad, you, you're kind of like, you don't know what you're going to major in because you kind of like a little bit of everything. Yeah. When you're in medical school, you're like, oh my God, I actually have to choose between one versus the other. Um, so within cardiology, I know I, I would do cardiology again, definitely. Mm. Um, some of the things that excite me now when I see my colleagues work is I, the heart failure group with LVADs and, and the, the success in transplant, that's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, so if I didn't do EP, I might do advanced heart failure. Interesting. All right. So you still, still be dealing with the heart. Yeah. Any last words of wisdom for the student or resident listening to this, thinking about EP as in, in their future? I think electrophysiology is a great field. And I want to make a plug for female physicians. I think electrophysiology is a wonderful field for female cardiologists for a number of reasons. It's intellectually challenging. Number two is that, you know, even though the days are long, the, the, the weekends, the evenings, the, you know, it's, it's nice. Mm-hmm. Number three is that we have gone from a heavy floral field to almost a low floral to no floral field okay. in, in a lot of the procedures that we do. So I know that was a concern for a number of female physicians. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, we definitely need to have more women in electrophysiology. Uh, we, need a, we, need, we need their voices. We need their care. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's something that I would definitely consider. I think for the for for the non-female physicians looking into 
cardiology. Um, it's a great field that you get to work with your hands. So if you're on the fence between medicine and surgery, and you're, you you want to sort of do some surgical stuff, this is a great field to pick because, you know, I implant devices, I perform lead extraction, a lot of the surgical things that we do in, in, in surgery training, we do an EP. And so it's a nice mix of both. All right, so there you have it again, Dr. Hemel Nayak, cardiac electrophysiologist. I hope this was helpful for you to understand some of these subspecialties in the cardiology world, what it takes to get there, what you should be doing if you're interested in it, and so much more. Don't forget to check out all of our episodes that we have. This is episode 209. So if you are new to the Specialty Stories podcast, don't forget to go listen to all of the back catalog and learn all of the amazing specialties that we have covered here on the podcast. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.